You know, when I was a student at Auburn, I was a junior. I was, uh, by any stretch of any measurement, a successful student uh, from the outside looking in. Uh, but I began to feel a tremendous amount of pressure on me, uh, even though I had a high GPA and was in a, a good social group and all of that. Um, and the pressure I began to realize came from the pursuit of the American dream. Um, and the American dream, uh, w- which had been taught to me from society, but not just from society, but really had been taught to me from the church. Not explicitly, but implicitly, uh, that there's a certain way that you should dream about what life is about, and it kind of goes like this. Uh, when you're in high school, you should work really hard to get into a good college, and when you're in college, you should work really hard and pick a really good major and do really well at that major so that as soon as possible, you get a good job and make a lot of money, or make as much money as you can, so that you can be secure and uh, hopefully at peace so that you can start a family, so that the dream is that you can retire when you're maybe in your mid-50s or early 60s while you're still healthy, maybe, uh, so that then you can enjoy your life. And so I felt a tremendous amount of pressure on me at the age of 20 that it was kind of all about that. The American dream, even though I, I... didn't really theologically understand how it made sense according to the Bible was what everyone was going after both in the church and in the world, and I felt a tremendous amount of pressure from that. And I began to realize that the American dream isn't in the Bible. Actually, America's not in the Bible, but that's a different sermon for a different time. Um, The American dream's not in the Bible The dream that's in the Bible is right here in Revelation 7, 9 through 17. This passage is God's dream. This is what God wants for us. And it's what we should want for ourselves. Today we're going to talk about what it looks like to look backwards from heaven at our lives. We're going to fast forward and realize together, hopefully in a fresh way, where we're going to be and who we're going to be with and who's going to be the king of heaven and what is it going to be like for us to be there. And then we can look backwards from heaven at our lives and ask ourselves the question, how does my life right now line up with that dream? Or how much is it aligned with the American dream? And maybe what should change about that? It was an epiphany for me. I was at a, a crew meeting during this time in my life, I was going through all this turmoil, and my uh, crew campus director said, it was a big meeting, a thousand people that were coming to crew at the time at Auburn, and uh, he said, I want to illustrate for you uh, the number of people that are lining up to uh, go to the mission field versus the number of people that are lining up to go do something else. And so he said, I want all of you to stand up. There's a thousand people. Stand up. He said, turn to your left, put your hands on the shoulders in front of you, and you all represent the continuous line of people that are lining up to go somewhere besides global missions. And then he brought one student up to the front, and he said, now I want you to hold your hands out. And he said, this student represents the number of students that are lining up to go to global missions. 
And that's about the right percentages. In fact, it, it's, it was a little bit off then. I think it was one in 500, but in the pandemic, it's actually gotten worse. Mission agencies are having a really hard time recruiting people to go, obviously with the geopolitical turmoil in the world. And listen, here's one, one huge point of this sermon is this, okay? You already have a special calling. If you look at your, if you look at your future in Revelation 7, you already have a special calling. There are no people in the church that have more special callings than other people in the church. If that is going to be your future, then you have a special calling, okay? So one of the problems that exists in the church is when people are like, oh, okay, pastors or missionaries, they have special callings, and then I just have a normal calling. I'm just a, uh, whatever, doctor, engineer, attorney, I'm a, dad, I'm a mom, that's not, you know, it's not very special, but pastors and missionaries, that's what it's all about. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am asking is this, are the, are the percentages off of people who are lining up to go overseas as missionaries, are, they, are they, the percentages messed up so that like one in a thousand go? It's hard for me to reconcile that with the view of Scripture. But no matter, where you, no matter where you are or what you're doing, you're still, if you're here, if you're in the RTP, if you're living in Cary, we're still, we still have a special calling. Whatever we do, wherever we live, we're all called. We all have incredible opportunities for cross-cultural love. We have incredible opportunities for that. We all have this special calling to live in light of what's going to be happening with us in Revelation 7. 9 through 17. No matter where you live, if you, if you live in the RTP or Atlanta, Abu Dhabi or Istanbul, you're, you're, if you're a believer, your motivations for living need to change. Our motivations have to change from the American dream to God's dream. And if our, if our dreams change, then our behavior and our lives will change here. So as we move forward in Revelation 7, I want to put it back in the context of all of what's going on in Revelation. If you remember last week, uh, there's Revelation 6 and then 8, and we went, it's a really long passage. Um, but there are seven seals that represent the unfolding of God's plan in history. The first four seals, uh, as they're unleashed, there's just a lot of, a lot of um, difficulty on the earth. There's a lot of anxiety on the earth. There's kingdoms rising and falling, there's military conquest, there's disease, there's famine, and we see God's rule, though it is real, it is restrained, and God is allowing certain things to happen in the world. And yet we see his, his reign actually made real, we see it in the martyrs as they're revealed in seal number five. And then we get to this Revelation 7 passage where there's the sealing, S-C-A-L, sealing of the 144,000. Okay, now I said last week, this is not a literal number. This is the number 12, which is God's perfect number, the, the number of perfection and completion and, and fullness. This 12 is then doubled, and, and it, then it, it, excuse me, it's squared, and then it's multiplied by 1,000. So the picture here of 144,000, don't think literally, think this is the total number of people that are going to be sealed by God. This is the church. They're going to be sealed off from experiencing God's wrath and destruction which come 
when seal number six is revealed and the, the final destruction of the earth. And so what you find here in our passage today is you have the church, the 144,000 before the Lamb, and we get a picture of what this is going to be like for them as they are in heaven with the Lord. And we see a huge juxtaposition between what the church is going to experience with God as they are sealed from his wrath and what the world is going to experience for those who are not in Christ. And so the huge difference, the massive difference is if you are united with Christ by faith, you are sealed and this is your future. And if you are not united with Christ and you are not sealed by him, then this is not your future. And so we have to understand this is a passage that's about the church and what God is going to bless us with in the fulfillment of his dream. So today we're going to look more closely at three things, the people of heaven, the king of heaven, and then the experience of heaven, the people, the king, and the experience. Let me pray for us. God, I just ask that you would, this is such an important passage, such a beautiful passage, such a paradigmatic passage for us as Christians, and I pray that by your spirit you would make it come alive to us in our hearts that we would see it and believe it and long for it and live in light of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, the people of heaven. I'm just gonna read verse nine again real briefly. It says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So if you are a believer, this is your future. This is your future. You will experience this in heaven one day. John is looking out at this massive crowd in heaven, this massive crowd of redeemed brothers and sisters. This day will happen to you. I want to ask you, what will be on your mind that day? What will it be like for us to be there? When I'm in a large crowd, I find myself thinking about three things. First of all, I can be amazed by the sheer number of people around me. And then I look for someone that I know, usually, because I feel kind of like, man, I feel kind of alone, even though I'm with like a billion people. And then I people watch. I kind of observe like, what are these people like? What's going on here? So let's walk through that. So let's say you're in heaven. And first of all, you're looking at the crowd. I think we will be utterly blown away by the, the size in, in, human, uh, in human form of God's grace. I think we'll just be blown away by how many people are saved and are there with us. It will be billions of people. And it will be overwhelming. I think it will be really, really big. Heaven will be big, so it'll be spread out. But still, it'll be, be a lot of people. Maybe like you feel at the fair, but I think better than that for sure. Um, and so then second, you're going to look for people that you know. And you're going to be amazed that some people are there that you didn't think would be there. You're going to be like, wow, you? <laughs> That's incredible. Praise God. I mean, and then you're going to quickly think about yourself and be like, yeah, well, how did I get here? I mean, it's by God's grace. But we're going to be surprised by who's there, who received God's grace in the end. People that you probably wrote off. Maybe you shared the gospel with them or you prayed for them and you thought, it's probably not going to happen. I think it will for a lot of people. 
And then I think you might be surprised by who's not there. Um, I think that will be an unfortunate reality is that there are going to be people that you felt like for sure were Christians and they're not. And we have to recognize that in a, in a room like this and in a church like this, that there are going to be people that you thought had surrendered their life to Christ, but they never had. They never had surrendered their life to Christ. And there was some other reason that they were involved in the student ministry that you're in or the, the church that you're in. And so I think there'll be some surprise. And then third, I think we're going to people watch. I think we're going to look around and we're just going to be like, what is going on here? I mean, because God tells us that there's going to be someone from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. Right now, the Joshua Project, which is a great website, great, great group of people, they, they research the unreached people groups in the world that have not yet been reached. So right now in the world, there are 17,400 plus people groups in the world. And the number of unreached of those groups right now currently sits at 7,398, which is 42.4% of the world's people groups by population, excuse me, by unreached population that still need to hear the gospel. And God's promise is that every single one of these groups will have someone in heaven, probably more than one. And I think we're going to be blown away. I love, one of the things I love, maybe the thing I love most about our church, I think there's a lot of things, but I love that our church is at least a little bit of a preview of heaven and that we have about 25 different uh, nations in our church and maybe more, I don't know. I, I, I quit counting a while back when I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't keep track of it anymore, but I love that we're not uh, monocultural, uh, monoethnic, that we are, a, are some kind of a preview of heaven, even though it's not 17,400. It's definitely not all one. You know, I think there's going to be Christians that get to heaven and they're, they're a little bit surprised, even if they've read Revelation 7, because they've never worshiped in a congregation that had anybody that wasn't their ethnicity. They never worshiped with anyone that didn't sing the kind of music that they particularly like or read the theologians that they've grown up listening to. And I think it's going to be maybe a slight shock to the system. I think we're going to enjoy it, but I want to be ready a little bit more for that than to be completely shocked. Uh, because it's utterly not shocking, according to the heart of God, that there would be many nations represented in his church. No people group is forgotten by God. God will receive glory from all tongues, tribes, and peoples, and languages he created. The diversity of earth will glorify the one true God. Imagine with me, think about the best like cultural festival you've ever been to. Imagine with me, heaven, imagine, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> so I've got a little bit of a cold. The food, imagine the music, imagine the, the collective intellect, imagine the conversations, it's going to be amazing. And they're going to be wearing, we're all going to be wearing white robes. We've all, how are we there? We're there by grace. We have received a new identity, the grace of Jesus. We've all repented. We've received forgiveness. We've been washed on the inside to match the outer robe of identification. We all have palm branches. This is obviously a, a picture of Palm Sunday where Jesus the king rode in on a donkey, the humble king, and, and the people there, and there were nations that had gathered at that time at the Passover, 
and they all worshiped him and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. My question though is, how will heaven be diverse if cross-cultural friendships aren't formed here and now? If the church is not a church of cross-cultural love, then how will Revelation 7 be actualized? I was in a conversation not too long ago, and I was talking with someone about um, the importance of befriending Muslims, or the importance of churches befriending mosques, not in theological agreement, but because they share in the image of God and we want them to know Jesus. And this person said back to me something like, you realize you're being really idealistic to think that a Muslim would really change. It's not like Muslims become Christians very often. And I responded back to him and I said, perhaps uh, it is unusual to find a Muslim who converts. I don't know. I think there are a lot of Muslims that are coming to Christ in the world right now. But how did you, how did you get here? How did it happen that you changed? How, how unlikely is it that you would be a Christian? Um, I think that it's unlikely for any of us that God would transform my broken life, that it would be less remarkable uh, for to happen to me than to a Muslim. I think we need to be sharing the gospel cross-culturally. This is the very heart of God for the nations. Whether it be someone that may be very culturally different than you, or it might just be your neighbor. I think it's this basic loving your neighbor. You happen to live in a diverse community. Love the people who are around you. I think we tend to um, look at our community through our own lens, and we, we see our, our community as being more monocultural than it actually is. What I mean is, when you think about who you could be friends with in your neighborhood, you typically start building your list by people you feel like you have cultural similarities with. And I get that. I mean, I like to hang out with guys in my neighborhood who play fantasy football and all that too. But I think we also need to step back and go, who are my neighbors? Like, for real. And there's a lot of people in our community that don't know Christ, that don't, that don't have any exposure to the church, that come from cultural traditions where they probably have never heard the gospel. It's an incredible opportunity for us to share with others. When I was in China, one of my favorite stories is I had been there for six days, and I didn't speak any Chinese, obviously, at that point. And um, I was, my only way to meet people was to walk up to them and say, hi, my name is Corey, do you speak English? And if they, they would either say yes and be able to have, you know, say a sentence back to me, and I'd be like, okay, let's meet again. Or I could get a blank stare. I'd say nine out of ten were blank stares, and so you just kind of move on. My main way of, like, connecting with people was playing basketball. So I would play basketball, and I was pretty good at basketball. Not that good, but um, pretty good. And so, and they just thought I was this anomaly. I'm, I'm from America, and so a crowd would gather, and they would watch me play no matter where I was playing. But anyway, as I was playing one day, as I finished, I was walking back to my dorm in this small, very small uh, Chinese uh, male student came behind me, and he literally tugged on my jacket, and he said, excuse me, do you have information about Bibles? And I was like, you know, we'd been trained to spot spies, you know, and I'm like, well, that's a very, that's not a very subtle spy, you know, I'm like, uh, well, why do you want to know? He's like, well, I've been walking around the soccer field for nine months with my shortwave radio, 
And I've been listening to sermons out of Hong Kong, and I hear preachers talk about Jesus and the gospel, and I don't understand it. Could you explain it to me? I was like, yeah, <laughs> I absolutely can. So I met with him, and we, I went on. I was able, I mean, God had already prepared him. It was like the easiest evangelistic experience ever. And he came to know Christ. Um, and, and I don't, you know, very few um, opportunities are that obvious or easy. But the point is this, that God is at work. If you're reformed, you believe that God is at work in people's hearts preparing them to hear the gospel. It's our opportunity to find them. It's our opportunity to find them so that they can become a part of these 144,000 who are sealed and who experience this story, this dream that we're all living toward. So that's the people of heaven, the king of heaven, the king of heaven. And that's verses 10 through 12. And it says, And they, that is the billions of people, cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so can you imagine the full-hearted, united worship that is centered on the King of heaven that is happening here? I love our worship here at Trinity Park. I believe it is a really good preview for us. But even Joe would admit, man, nothing's going to compare. Nothing's going to compare to heaven and the worship we're going to see we're going to experience <coughs> together. So I've been at a concert before with 90,000 people, and that was nice. Um, it wasn't worship, um, but it was something else. But anyway, there's a lot of people. But it's nothing compared to, to thinking about all of these people that are gathered, the, the diversity, all singing out together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb you know, the beautiful thing about this, one of the beautiful things is when you, when you speak to a Chinese person or an Indian person or a Saudi Arabian person or, or someone who's from Eastern Europe or anywhere in the world, what you have to realize for every single person, their greatest hope, whoever they are, is found in Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus created them to know him. That is, that is the, the hope of the human heart. So what you have here as these nations are coming together in heaven is you have all of these people, no matter what their ethnic background is, they have found their lives in Jesus. Jesus has completed them, whatever their background is. And so they're singing to the God, to the king, who because he has become central in their lives, they have, have come to life. They have been fulfilled. They have really experienced the new creation life that is found only in the good news of God's grace. Jesus is the king of heaven. He is the lamb on the throne. Not only do you have billions of people, you have all the angels, billions of angels, and you have the 24 elders, and you have the four living creatures, and they are all singing and bowing down to and making central who? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are being worshipped, extolling him as king. They're praising him for his glory and wisdom. They're thanking him for his honor and power and strength. So for many of us who have grown up in the church, Jesus may have become a bit, 
a bit boring to us, I mean, honestly. I mean, we, we, Sunday after Sunday, we come in and we, we worship, and, and I'm, I'm with you. There are some Sundays where I'm just, I'm distracted and, and I'm not in it, uh, but we need to get out of that, that malaise that we can find ourselves in. Sometimes seeing how other people respond to the gospel when they hear it can be helpful to us. I've told this story before. I was reminded of it when I was in Indonesia uh, last week or two weeks ago. Time, jet lag, I don't know what, what week it is, but um, when I met the, the students in Indonesia that had, been, that had come from this tribe and they'd been brought to Jakarta, it reminded me of when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to Palawan, the Philippines, and I've shared this story before, but it was this incredible experience where I, I was there again to play basketball, and a, a crowd was drawn around, and we went to these different cities, and we had someone that could share the gospel, but this missionary that we were with had, had hiked into a village and they speak a dialect, it's called Takbanwa, and only 800 people in the world speak this dialect. So he had spent time to learn a language that only 800 people, one of these unreached people groups, speaks. And he hiked in with his family, and he, at that time, there were no translations of the Bible into the language of the people. So he hiked in, he spent time learning the language, and over time, he began to share the story of the gospel with these people. And he started with creation, which is, that's really amazing. They heard the story of Jesus from redemptive history. Instead of starting with the fact that you're a sinner and you need a savior and Jesus died for your sins and you should believe him, which is true. They, they got the whole picture, the whole picture of why. And they started with, you're created in God's image and then everything got broken and then God started preparing us with all of these, these symbols and signs and these, these precursors of, of what was going to come. Then Jesus came. He became their hero. He really, truly became the hero of the people. They were so excited about Jesus. They had been, they were animistic. They, they literally sacrificed chickens and even humans to the gods. They would cut themselves as a way to abate evil, to, to ask for forgiveness for things they'd done wrong. And so then the gospel comes along and they have Jesus who, who lives, who loves them and, and gives them grace. And so, but when he eventually, when Jesus eventually died on the cross, the whole town went into mourning. Everyone mourned for Jesus. Everyone was so mad at Jody, the, the missionary. And it was so dramatic, the change that happened in the village, that the chief went to Jody and said, you, please tell me you didn't move here. And you didn't take all this time to tell us about a hero who died. Is, is that the end of the story? Please tell me that's not the end of the story. And so Jody went on and he had timed it perfectly on Easter Sunday. And so he told them about Jesus who was raised from the dead. And there was this like this drastic silence that went over everybody for a while, for a long time. Um, and then the chief stood up and he said, my wife and I and our family believe in Jesus. What about you? And they pointed with their lips in this village. So it's like National Geographic. And he would say, what about you? And he pointed to the second guy. And he stood up and he said, my family and I believe in Jesus. What about you? And they went down. And like the first 15 families believed in Jesus. And then they actually had a crazy party, like for like a couple of days. It was like Pentecost, where they actually just partied. 
because Jesus was alive and he was their, he was their hero again. And I feel like our worship of the Lord is going to be like that in heaven. That is our dream. And then we need to think about what about now? What's happened in my heart that I don't usually even have any type of 1% level of worship going on in my life that's commensurate with what Jesus has done. And we need to long that we would be ready for heaven because our life is going to be, I don't think it's going to be like a, an eternal worship service. We're going to be doing other things besides singing. But it's all going to be worship. And I think God wants us to prepare ourselves I think it starts with putting Jesus at the center of our life again. It starts with him being central, him being the king of our lives. This goes back to the American dream. I think part of the reason why we're not that excited about Jesus is that our real dream is something else. Our real dream isn't heaven. Our real dream is something else, and, and we get really excited about that. I mean, it could be something as simple as your football team winning or it could be as, as much as something else, something that is important. And I think our, our, our lives are important to God, but you would think by the way we celebrate things that we're more excited about other things than we are about the gospel. And I think we need to revisit that and, and ask ourselves why. And, and I think what it requires, frankly, is a change. I mean, it requires some change. You can't put Jesus at the center of your life and nothing changes. I mean, unless he's really actually already there in every single way, I think it requires us to take stock and ask ourselves, what is keeping me? What am I living for that's not this vision that holds, holds weight in my life? And so I think that we have a king, and, and because we have a king, he is good, and if we follow him, we follow him down that path of worship, I know for me, when I was in college, my biggest fear was, if I make Jesus central, will I hate my life? I mean, honestly, because I, w I was convinced that this was the path, American dream was the path to happiness. If I follow Jesus, am I going to be happy? Because I've been told this is what makes me happy, but I wasn't happy, so that was a problem. So then I thought, well, maybe it is Jesus. I was worried, though, that I would follow him. I would be totally miserable, but that's just not Jesus. He doesn't make people miserable. <laughs> he makes them utterly joyous and happy, and we see it pictured for us in heaven. So what would it take to stoke the fires of your relationship with Jesus so that you're ready for this day? And then finally, the experience of heaven, the experience of heaven. It's so beautiful. I think this is kind of funny at the beginning. One of the elders asked John, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? One of the elders, one of the 24. And John says to him, sir, you know. Like, I think, like, why are you asking me, dude? Like, you're one of the 24 elders. You know better than me. So that's kind of a funny little interlude. Um, so the elder answers him. They are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes to make them white in the blood of the lamb. So this is one of those questions we can get confused about in Revelation. So who are these people who have come out of the great tribulation? Are they a special group of people who have suffered more than everyone else? Or does this group who has suffered, who have come out of the great tribulation, is it everyone? Is it all of the people? And I believe the better answer is all of us. The better answer is we have all, we will all, we, we do all walk through tribulation. We walk through suffering. We walk through affliction. I believe the better understanding of Revelation 
7, 14 through 17, is this is the experience that all of us who have encountered suffering and pain will have in heaven. When Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes, this is all of us, weak and wounded, sick and sore, broken by the fall, struggling through life, now experiencing the wholeness found only in Jesus. Listen to the experience on that day. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Many of you have experienced pain. You know it very well. Chronic sickness, uh, loss of income, loss of job, loss of loved ones. We've all experienced a lot of loss. You've struggled with addiction or anxiety or anger. You struggle with a besetting sin that you've repented of many times and it still besets you. You struggle with being happy even when life is going well. Pain is universal to all who have been broken by the fall. How good does Revelation 7, 14 through 17 sound to you? It sounds like a dream, doesn't it? But it's a dream that will come true in the end. All that is broken will be worked backwards. All will be redeemed. This is our future. I'm glad it's your future. I'm glad it's mine. And we need to ask ourselves the question, though, we need to understand that this is only the future of those who have trusted Jesus for salvation. The, God, the, the revelation is not universalism. This is not everyone. This is God's people. And so that should compel us to ask ourselves the question, do we want this to be the future for more people than it is right now? Do we want more people to be included in this sheltering peace of heaven with us, standing in the presence of Jesus? Do we want more people to experience the absence of suffering? You know, as we look at our world today, as Andy prayed, I mean, there's so much suffering in the world, so much suffering. It's just hard to imagine in Gaza and Israel, Ukraine, Nigeria, North Korea, China, so many places, so many people. Right now, there are 71 million people in the world who have been displaced from their homes due to war, genocide, disease, and persecution. 71 million is the largest number of IDPs, uh, either internally displaced people or plus refugees. So people that are either in their home, or displaced and they are still in their home country or they're displaced and they're not in their home country, which is the real number of refugees, really. 71 million, so it was 51 million just five years ago, and that was during the Syrian war. So just to give you an idea, that's incredible. 20 million, 20 million more people are displaced. Most of them are still Syrian. That's incredible. Syria, the war in Syria started seven years ago. No, nine years ago, 2014. And nine years later, there's still 6.8 million Syrian refugees or IDPs. There are now 5.9 million Ukrainian refugees or IDPs because of the war. 
Think about this, 71 million refugees. And they're not just, they are, so many of them are overseas, and I wish we would receive more in our country. Why? That's not being political. It, it was, refugees were a gospel issue before it was a political issue. That's one of the problems that we have. You have to think gospel first and not political first. Yeah, okay, yeah, it is a political issue because it's happening, and politicians have to make decisions about it. But it was a gospel issue long before it was a political issue. Yeah, we should love our neighbor. We should love our neighbor we should want to, to welcome people into this country in, in good process, use good ways of processing through that, but we should want to love our neighbor. You know, Trinity Park, back in 2016, well, you may not know this, we were the first church in the Triangle to receive Syrian refugees. That was a really big deal back then. There were a lot of churches, I actually got emails from other churches that were trying to convince me that was the wrong thing to do, which is amazing to me. I mean, there are people who have been broken by war. The, the Syrian refugee family that we adopted, it had an unbelievable story, and we're still walking with them in some ways as much as we can. We have an opportunity, whether it's refugees or whatnot, whether you go overseas or you're here, you can, you can fly to another country or you can just walk across your cul-de-sac or your apartment community. There are so many people that need the love of Jesus that need to understand the sheltering presence of Christ you don't have to go anywhere. You can bring the gospel right here wherever you are. That's one of the things I love about our church. I pray that we never lose that, is this heart to see who, what God is doing around us. Who are the people that God is bringing into our community? How can we love them? I think one of the greatest things about our church is that we have really welcomed a diverse people here into this community, and that's beautiful. I love it. But my question then is, as this community that God has built here, this, this diverse community of people who love Jesus, how will we share the light of Christ, the love of Christ? How will we multiply out the number of people that will be in heaven, that will get to experience this? They shall hunger no more, thirst no more, sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. I really, really want for people in this life to have temporary relief, it, relief for their whole earthly lives from all of these realities. I want them to experience it. But we have to realize that after, if they do experience it here, then ultimately everyone has to face the Lord. And what I really want more than just temporary experience of peace, I really want them to experience eternal peace and rest in, in Christ. So we should be super vigilant right now to feed the hungry, to love the poor, to visit prisoners but our ultimate goal has to be that they would know Jesus, that they would know the love of Christ because Jesus really is the one that can shelter them for all of eternity. So I'll close with this story. Um, there, were, there was once, I've told the story before, again, it's a couple of old stories, but um, you may not have heard it, and it's one of my, my favorites, but there was a missionary who came back from the mission field and he was, you know, he'd been overseas for a long time. He was pretty socially awkward. And uh, at this point in time, this is like 20 years ago, he still had like the slideshow presentation, like, he, you know, the click and move around slideshow. And, and you know, the, the church hosted him and, and he, this missionary came back and they had a few people that showed up. Not very many people showed up to hear the missionary speak. And the missionary told amazing stories, kind of like some of the ones that I've just told about God's work in the world. And it was incredible and compelling, and I think there were eight or nine people that got to hear it, and at the end of the presentation, um, he said, you know, are there any, any questions or any other follow-up that you'd like to hear? And 
there was just silence. No one knew what to say. And so an elder in the back stood up and he asked the missionary, how did you know, how did you come to know that you had this special calling? And the missionary just looked at him and, and dropped his head and said, after a while, he said, special calling, whoever, whoever said anything about a special calling, I've been bought with the blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We all have a special calling. We just have to live for the one who died for us. And that kind of puts it in perspective. You have a special calling. I have a special calling. This is where we're going. How are we going to live our lives in light of where we're going how are we going to put our hope in Christ as our king? How are we going to help other people in the world put their hope in Christ as their king? Even as we go out and we do all we can to love the world and feed the world and give them water and clothe them and do everything that we can, let's not forget along the way that we have a Savior who gives ultimate sheltering presence, who ultimately wipes away every tear, who ultimately makes all things new. Let's not forget to tell them the good news of the gospel as we go. Because he is the king and he is worthy of praise and his dream is far better than the American dream. Let's pray. Lord, in this passage, you give us, it's like an interlude where we're pulled away in the midst of all that's going to happen in the future of the world and we get to see what our future will be like with you. And it is awesome. Lord God, it is, it is paradigm-breaking, life-reshaping beauty that we get to see. So God, I just pray that for us, as we look backwards from heaven, that we would see our lives and we would live our lives now in light of the people of heaven, the king of heaven, and the experience of heaven, that we will long for that day when all things are made new, that we will live our lives on purpose for your vision and your glory and your dream that we would follow you. Lord, we ask that you would reshape what needs to be reshaped, help us to repent of what needs to be repented of, and help us to worship you as you deserve, Lord Jesus. You are worthy. We thank you in Jesus' name.